And Andrew, thank you for sharing that little bit. And from the Faye family, we want to say another thank you. We need to say thank you a lot for extending the grace of a sabbatical to us, which actually starts in eight days, so a week from tomorrow, <laughs> FYI. Um, and so this will be actually my last sermon for a while. Um, next week, we'll have a few guest speakers with us for the celebration service of the 150th. I'll, I'll talk a little bit. Uh, but mostly we'll be listening to other folks next week. So if you would, if you're not already open to 1 Peter 3, um, that's a big, long passage, and we're not going to tackle it. We're not going to talk about Noah. We're not going to talk about baptism. So just get that off the table right now. Um, we're going to really look at verses 13 through 16 this morning. As we anticipate next weekend's celebration of the 150th birthday of First Baptist Church, uh, today we're ending our four-month walk-through of our mission statement, this mission series. In the last few weeks, I've been studying pretty intensely the history of this church. We have a lot of history, and we have a lot of material that I've been able to go through, and it's really, really interesting. But I've been especially struck by the significant changes that have taken place in the last century and a half. Okay, so 150 years ago, 1873, Prineville was not even Prineville yet. It was, a, it was barely Prineville. It was a small frontier settlement consisting mostly of some pioneers and some homesteaders scattered throughout the area. It was a place without pavement or parking lots, electricity, and it was a place without law and order. In fact, this was a time when vigilantes kind of ran things around here. Missionaries came here on horseback. It was like a mission field. Send them, to, send them to Central Oregon. There's missions over there. So they came here on horseback from the valley to proclaim the gospel. And then out of that work, a little church was formed here on the banks of the Crooked River. And within a decade, though, this church was actually sending out its own missionaries to the surrounding areas and to the homesteads and the settlements around here. And within a few decades, this church was planting churches around and throughout central Oregon. And it was very interesting to read about how this church, along with Prineville, was really the center of central Oregon. This was the big city in central Oregon, really, until the railroad came in and circumvented Prineville. And then Bend and Redmond and those other communities became bigger than it is. And so... Uh, for a long time, the people who have been First Baptist Church have striven to be a people who embody and proclaim the life-giving fullness of the gospel. And if you'll excuse me for a minute, it looks like I've forgotten to connect. Sorry. How's that? All right. So we know that the task set before us is to both embody and proclaim the gospel. Would you guys, would you guys say uh, our mission statement with me? We're going to go back to it here. Maybe. Is it there? No, it's not there. Goodness. Sorry. Okay. To be a people who embody and proclaim the life-giving fullness of the gospel. So we know that the task that's set before us, that is our mission given from our master, Jesus, is both to embody and proclaim the gospel. So to live it out in our lives and then also to speak it, to proclaim it. So the, the question for today is this, what will our lives look like when we live, or excuse me, when we give ourselves to doing this, when we give ourselves to both embodying and proclaiming 
the gospel. Let me put it another way. What are the marks of Christ's messengers? What are the marks of the messengers? And I think Peter, 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 16, will help us to answer this question as we look closely at it. So along with Peter, we'll begin then with the, with the most difficult part, which you already saw a little preview of a second ago. But it's in, in verse 14 of 1 Peter 3. It says this, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And so gospel messengers will suffer. And most of us can do without suffering, right? We like to avoid suffering. We do whatever we can to circumvent suffering or to, or to abate suffering or to go without it. So, so it kind of comes as a hard pill to swallow when we read the words of Jesus and we read the words of his apostles, his messengers, that suffering is actually an integral part of what it means to be a gospel messenger, of what it means to be one of Jesus' representatives. Because it's an integral part of the gospel message itself, it will always be reflected in the life and experience of gospel messengers. I remember reading this the first time when I was in high school, which, by the way, I guess there's a high school picture of me on your bulletin, if you want to see what I look like with hair. 2 Timothy 3.12, I remember reading this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be millionaires. No, will be what? Will be persecuted. Paul promises that to Timothy. And it's clear that, that the earliest Christians, those who, those who walked with Jesus himself, those who saw his ministry, saw him do miraculous works, raise the dead, saw him die and be resurrected again, it was clear to them that they understood that suffering would be an expected part of their lives as Jesus' messengers. Peter tells us that God sends suffering in our lives actually in order to test us, to, to, to prove us and to sanctify us, to make us more like him. But he also gives us the opportunity in our suffering to share in Christ's own sufferings. So look at the very next chapter, chapter 4 of 1 Peter. At verse 12, he says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I mean, he's like, Jesus promised this. Don't look at it as, as something weird or out of the ordinary. This is, this is how it is. Don't be surprised if something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That we get to share in his sufferings, that we get to be connected with him in his suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's almost like Peter is saying, unless you connect with Jesus and identify with him in his suffering, you will not experience his glory at a future date. Paul writes in Colossians, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. So, so both Peter and Paul rejoice in their own sufferings. And then Paul says this really weird thing. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And it almost sounds strange because Paul, it sounds like, like Paul is saying that Christ's work on the cross wasn't enough. That his, his sacrifice and his suffering wasn't enough for us. 
But, but that's not the case. That's not what Paul's saying here. What he's saying is that gospel messengers act as proxies in a way. We act as physical, visible, bodily representatives of Christ. And so we embody the sufferings of Christ to people who weren't able to see Christ actually suffer. Gospel messengers carry Christ's sufferings with them as they carry the good news. Now this is complete opposite of our normal mindset, right? The experience of of suffering to us is usually something, well, God must be upset with me. God, I must have done something wrong to earn this. I must not, why am I not being blessed by God? But for Peter and for Paul and the rest of the apostles, the experience of suffering is not a sign of being cut off from God's blessing. Peter says it right there in verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. The scripture is clear that those who are in Christ are blessed regardless of their worldly status. Regardless of, of if, they're, if they're being blessed or if they're suffering. Blessing and suffering are not incompatible in the Christian life. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 17, he says, For this light momentary affliction, whatever suffering he's gone through, and Paul went through a lot, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's preparing something for us that we can't even fathom. And Peter is clear that experiencing suffering doesn't negate the experience of blessing. And this verse in 2 Corinthians seems to imply that there's actually a positive correlation between suffering and blessing. And Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 12 to say this, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, with hardships, persecutions, and calamities. But when I am weak, then I am strong. God's grace is sufficient even in our weakness, and my prayer is that that could be our prayer. We'd be able to say that. The second mark of the messenger is that gospel messengers are bold. Look again at 1 Peter 3, 14, where where Peter writes, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And Courage, how many of you want to be courageous? Like you, you would love to have the virtue of courage. Just a few of you, okay, maybe eight or ten. How many of you think you are courageous? There's more, more hands go up, right? It's a, it's a virtue I think that we all desire. Like I want to be a courageous person. I don't want to be, I don't want to be a coward. I don't want to be thought of as a coward. And on top of that, I think we, we all want it, and most of us, I think, believe that we ourselves are courageous people. And of course, we'll never know that that's the case until our courage is tested. And some of you in this room have had your courage tested in very serious ways, and you've been found to be courageous. Others have had your courage tested in your life, and you've, you've maybe fallen short in a particular test of courage. And others of us maybe remain untested as far as that goes. And I would argue that courage or boldness is a difficult virtue to come by. And like all virtues, it's a virtue that has to be nurtured. It actually has to be practiced. The more you practice boldness, the more you practice courage, the more courageous you become. It's not always something that's just innate. It must grow with time and patience and practice. 
And boldness is something that Jesus' early apostles and messengers regularly prayed for. For instance, Peter and John, you might remember this story in Acts chapter 4. They walk into the, the temple in Jerusalem and they heal this lame beggar. And then they begin to talk to people about Jesus and speak to them the gospel very boldly. Well, they get arrested. And after they'd been arrested and put on trial and ordered to stop speaking about Jesus... They're boldly standing before this council of very powerful Jews, the Sanhedrin, who's basically ordered them to cease and desist. Stop talking about Jesus and we'll leave you alone. And Peter says, well, let's think about this for a second. Either we can listen to you or we can listen to God. We're going to go with God. And they were released. They weren't put back in prison. They weren't killed. They weren't released. And after being released... They gathered the church together and they prayed. And it's interesting because you read that story and you think these dudes were bold. Peter and John were courageous, like in the face of power, courage. And then they go and find their friends. And what do they pray for in Acts chapter 4, verse 29? They say this, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So they just done this really bold thing, and then they go and pray for boldness. Give us all boldness to continue doing this while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So what do they pray for? They pray, Lord, allow us to continue speaking your word with boldness. That prayer gets answered two verses later as they continue to do what? Speak the word of God with boldness. Paul also later on asked his churches for opportunities for him to boldly proclaim the gospel in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, asking God to answer this prayer. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So twice he prays. He asks them to pray for him that he would speak boldly. And I can barely, barely think of anybody more bold or courageous than the apostle Paul. And here he was praying for courage. These are giants of the faith. Peter, John, Paul, and they were praying for boldness, which honestly gives me a ton of hope. Why does that give me hope? Why should it give you hope? Because it means that they experienced fear. It means that they were afraid. You don't pray for boldness when you're fearless. You don't ask for courage when you're not scared of anything. And since the first apostles who, who face arrest, they faced, they faced death threats, physical violence, some of, well, I think all of them except for John were killed violently. The first apostles, since they asked for boldness, then they're not so different from me. They're not so different from you. And by implication, that means that I should be praying for boldness. You should be praying for boldness to share the gospel as well, right? So why don't we? I think we don't pray for boldness to share the gospel because we're afraid that God will answer our prayers. 
And he might actually give us an opportunity where we have to boldly speak. Because God is in the habit of kindly answering these kinds of prayers. You've probably probably heard a definition of courage as being afraid, but doing it anyway. Being afraid of something, but doing it anyway. Max Stiles wrote a little book, which I took the I took the title of this sermon from that book, Marks of the Messenger. He put it this way. I love this quote. He said, Boldness is not a lack of fear. It is faith in something bigger than our fears so that we appear fearless. Confidence in something bigger than our fears gives us the strength to do the right thing in spite of opposition or persecution. And this brings up the next point That gospel messengers love Jesus. So look at verse 15. Where he says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. What does that mean? I think it means that Jesus must have the first place in our hearts. He must be preeminent in our hearts, in our affections, in our loves. He must be above all other things in our devotion and in our allegiance. To be set apart or to be honored, Jesus must have the throne of our hearts all to himself with nothing else on there. He needs to be preeminent. No one or nothing else can compete with him. So in order for us to have the boldness to proclaim the gospel as we should, Jesus must be bigger than our fears. You see, our fears usually revolve around what is on the throne of our hearts. And if other people are on the throne of our hearts, then we will bow down to them because we fear what they might think of us. And if we're on the throne of our own hearts then we'll bow down to our own fears because we don't want to lose our comfort. We don't want to lose our safety or our security or our reputation. And when those things rule our hearts, other people or ourselves, Jesus does not have his rightful place. And at that point, what we've done is we've given other people or ourselves the central honor in our lives. But remember this. The gospel message is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about other people. The gospel message is about Jesus. And if Jesus isn't foremost in our hearts and affections, the question is, what is he worth to you? Is he worthy enough for us to lay down our lives and give up our lives? Is he worthy enough to face our fears in order to tell someone else about him? Is he worthy enough for me to walk into the middle school and get to know some middle school students or some high school students who shouldn't be at the middle school. I'd have to go to the high school for that. Is he worthy enough for others, for me to want others to trust him as well because he is worthy of their trust? And only when Jesus is everything to us, only when he is worthy of our life and our trust and our allegiance, only then will we be able to boldly press through fear in order to carry his message to others. Because the desire of the gospel messenger is for Christ to be honored as holy, not only in my heart, 
but in your heart as well, and in as many hearts as he can be, to be magnified, to be exalted, to be trusted, and to be worshipped. Our love for Christ and our devotion to his glory and worth should be our ultimate motivation for proclamation. So I wonder if our prayer should not only be for boldness, but Jesus, would you help us love you more? Would you help us to set you apart as holy in our hearts? The fourth mark of a gospel messenger is that gospel messengers are prepared. I have this recurring dream, and I'm weird, I know, that I walk into a college math class, and I'm like two months behind on my homework, and a big test is coming up, and I'm not ready. Anybody else have a weird dream like that? Weird? Yeah. Is it math? No, something different. You don't do math, right? And, and for some reason, I don't know, that's probably this is a subliminal thing. I must be some kind of Boy Scout because I really want to be prepared, right? Always prepared is the Boy Scout motto. And, and I'm having these dreams that I'm not prepared, and it's a nightmare for me. But in regards to the gospel, we are urged to be prepared, right? Verse 15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And I think there's, there's two ways that we can be prepared to make a defense. And the first is that we should be studied up. To be prepared means that you're studied up. Peter said, just like I should be for a math test, studied up, right? Peter says that we are to be prepared, in particular, to make a defense. Now, the Greek word translated as defense here is the word apologia. Apologia. We get the English words apology and apologetics from that word. And to apologize is to give one, someone a, a defense for our actions, right? And apologetics is the practice of giving a reasoned defense of the Christian message. It's a defense. And I, I think the word implies two things as you think about that. Giving a defense for your actions and for the Christian message. I think, first of all, it means that we should be studied up on the message itself. To be able to defend it, we need to know the message. Messengers should love and, and know the, the message of the gospel, which means that we ought to know God's word. We should be immersed in it. We should be reading the Bible and studying the message and meditating on it and praying it back to God and speaking about it whenever we can with others. The message, the word, should be central in shaping our lives. To be prepared to means, to have, means to have an accurate handle on the message that this book contains. That we don't add to it and we don't subtract from it, but we're able to articulate it in all its biblical fullness. So let me ask you this question. If you're stuck on an elevator with somebody for three minutes, not stuck, it's actually moving, you're going to get somewhere. It's not stuck. The alarm's not going off. And somebody turns to you and says, hey, would you explain the gospel to me by the time we get to the 12th floor? Would you be able to do it? Can you pass the elevator test? Are you able to articulate the gospel in a clear and concise way that doesn't leave anything important out and doesn't add anything that shouldn't be there? We must be studied up and prepared with the message itself. And secondly, I think what Peter is speaking here is that we should be, excuse me, studied up. I, I went forward too fast there. Secondly, we, we need to be studied up, not just on the message, but also on the culture into which we speak the message. 
We have to be aware of what is going on in the world in terms of truth and lies, in, ter- in terms of alternative gospels and alternative worldviews. We should be aware of the particular ways in which people are being deceived in our culture. The things that they are believing and how our culture is shaping their thoughts. Aware of those things and also able to speak in a way that makes sense in the culture in which we live. How does the gospel address the hot button issues and themes of our culture? How can I articulate the culture in a way that makes sense, or excuse me, the gospel in a way that makes sense to a middle schooler or a high schooler or my neighbor across the street? Now secondly, to be prepared also means not just that you're studied up, but that you're prayerfully anticipating opportunities. It means looking for openings and opportunities to share the gospel with people who are around you, to speak boldly and clearly, to answer questions about it and have a conversation about it, to even call for a response from someone to the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to be the awkward people at the parties that always bring up something weird and turn into kind of a disingenuous gospel salesman every time we have a conversation with somebody. Rather, it means to prayerfully anticipate that we would regularly ask God for gospel opportunities, and then we would keep our eyes open for them. You pray in the morning, God, give me an opportunity to to, to speak of you, to speak of Jesus, to speak of the gospel. Because we should be people who actually think that God is in charge of the world, that we live in a God-saturated world, a place where the Spirit of God is actually working on people's hearts day in and day out, and that He's taking us and placing us next to certain people, that we never have accidental meetings or conversations with people, that God is orchestrating it all and giving us regular divine appointments. And when this happens, the Christ whom we exalt in our hearts should overflow into our relationships and how we treat people, how we love them, how we listen to them, how we act in the world, and then how we speak about this Jesus whom we love. The fifth mark of a gospel messenger is found in 1 Peter 3, and it's a gospel messengers have hope. So always being prepared to make a defense to anyone, verse 15, who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So people aren't just asking us about anything. They're asking us about the hope that is in us. Peter identifies the message of the gospel as a message of hope. It's a forward-looking message. In particular, it's a message that's focused on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now look at verse 18, if you will. And here's Peter's one-minute elevator speech. Here it is, the gospel. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And in verse 22, he'll get to the resurrection. But before we get there, you see it. Christ suffered, and he suffered for your sins. Because you were unrighteous, he was righteous, he paid the price, he took your place. And when he did that, he paid for your sins, forgiven forever, forever, so that you could be made right with God. There's the gospel in a nutshell. But the message of the gospel doesn't end there. 
It actually speaks also of resurrection, that Christ was raised again. And it also declares that Jesus has been and is currently enthroned on the throne at the right hand of God in heaven, and he wields the ultimate and final authority in the universe. Verse 22, look down, if you will. And he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Christians are those, brothers and sisters, we are those who have a sure hope. It's not a wish dream. It's not a vague desire that may or may not be met one day. We have a sure hope. We have hope because we have experienced the actual results of the gospel. We ourselves have been forgiven of our sins. We have been changed and made into new creations. We've been placed in a new family called the church. We have access to God. When we pray, we're speaking to the Father. Yes, we still struggle in this world. But our struggles don't overcome us. We still sin in this world, but our sin isn't what defines us anymore. Our hope is that this sinful world is not all there is, that death, suffering, and sin are not the last words. And this, this isn't a, a naive hope that just buries its head in the sand. It's a hope that is bold enough to look evil in the eye because we know that good has and one day finally will prevail over it. We can look evil straight in the eye and not allow it to gain dominance or mastery over us because we know that Christ is stronger and he will one day have the final word over it. This is the hope that we have. Hope that everything will be made right and we will be with Jesus one day. Does this message sound foolish to the world? Absolutely it does. But thankfully, you and I don't have to convince everyone. We simply get to embody and proclaim the gospel, and God has promised to take care of the rest. Now, the last mark of a gospel messenger is that gospel messengers are gentle and reverent. So 1 Peter 3.15, where it says, Yet do it, do it with gentleness and respect. Or your, your translation might say gentleness and reverence. Or fear. According to Galatians 5.23, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. The Greek word is defined this way in one of the lexicons. Quote, the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. I love that definition. <laughs> I need to memorize that. The quality of not being over-impressed with a sense of one's self-importance. So gentleness is intimately tied. It's intimately tied with humility. To be gentle means, and it begins with, thinking of others as better than yourself, even if they are your enemies and your opponents. So those who oppose you, those who think differently about, about things in you, those who hate Jesus, those who oppose your viewpoints, whether they be religious or political, in the, in the context of the first century, it would be the guy that was holding the whip and whipping you in the back or the guy that was holding the nail and pounding it into your wrist. 
to think and love that person, think of them and love them as more important in that moment than even yourself. Paul writes to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. You see, the opposite of gentleness is arrogance. It's pride. It's harshness. It's unkindness. As gospel messengers, we are not to be argumentative or answer people with anger or sarcasm or vulgarity or combativeness. Gospel messengers are not Bible bashers. We're not conflict seekers. We're not name callers or trolls or baiters who just want to get in and make an argument and win it. Rather, we treat others with the same gentleness and kindness with which Jesus treats us. The word here translated respect, so do this with gentleness and respect. The word translated respect here is literally the Greek word for fear, the the word that we get the word phobia from. And we already know, as Peter's pointed out, that we're not to fear people, we're to fear whom? God. So so this word likely has more to do with our attitude towards God as we deal with other people. So we're being gentle towards others and reverent, fearful of God. And this truth is drawn out in the first words of verse 16 as Peter writes, having a good conscience. In other words, dealing with people in a way for which you will feel comfortable answering to God one day. Think about that. Every time you treat somebody, like, let me talk to somebody. Am I treating this person in a way in which I'm going to be comfortable answering to Jesus one day? You see, God cares about the way we treat others. So, so all of our interactions are of utmost importance. And when we treat people with gentle kindness, we treat them as God would treat them, knowing we will be held accountable for how we treat others when we proclaim the gospel to them. So in our gospel proclamation, we treat others with gentleness because we have a high reverence for God. And we have set apart Jesus as holy in our hearts. And this brings us really full circle as we consider what it means for us to be gospel messengers, to be gospel proclaimers. Those who both embody and faithfully proclaim the life-giving fullness of the gospel. So may we honor Christ as holy in all that we do because he is worthy. He's worth it. We celebrate that worth of Christ this morning as we come to the communion table. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come. There's a few stations up here in the front and some in the back. And we come, we take this bread and this wine and we we partake of the the Lord's body and his blood that he promised would be the new covenant signaling to us that we have been granted forgiveness through Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf through the gospel. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I'd invite you to come and partake and and be reminded of the great worth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And to go from here, filled with his spirit, boldly ready to proclaim his worth. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come before you once again, and we are humbled by the gospel. 
We're humbled by what you've done for us in your son, Jesus Christ. We're humbled for his suffering on our behalf. We're, we're humbled that he has entrusted us as messengers with this message of the gospel, God. And we are jars of clay. We are frail earthenware pots. We're nothing to write home about. And yet, you have chosen to put this priceless message, this priceless gift, this treasure into us and, and commit it to us to take to the world. God, we want to take that seriously. We want to treat this with, with reverence and with awe. So as we come to you today and we're reminded of the gospel as we take of this bread, as we, as we drink of the fruit of the vine, would we be reminded of your body broken and your blood poured out on our behalf so that our lives would now be yours. May we live for you, Jesus, this day and this week. May you get all the glory. Amen.